We'll be looking at Psalm 63 this morning, if you want to turn there. It is in the Old Testament, and if you take your Bibles and basically open them halfway, you'll probably run into the Psalms, and we're going to be looking this morning at Psalm 63. David feels like he is in the desert. I want to tell you about someone who endured the desert for quite some time. His name was Mauro Prosperi. He was a 38-year-old Italian police officer who wanted to spend the next season of his life doing endurance races. So what better place to start than the Sahara Desert? 200-mile race. Uh, Multi-day race, 200 miles, multiple stages of about 30 to 50 miles every single day. On day one, uh, he starts his race and there's a huge windstorm and he gets knocked off track about 100 miles in the wrong direction. He doesn't know if he's going to survive. He doesn't know which direction he needs to head in. Uh, the average during those days was 117 degrees. At nighttime to stay warm, he would bury himself in the sand. At, at, during the daytime, he would try to find as much shade as he could. Every now and then, on a rare occasion, he would find just a little tiny spring of water, try to slurp up as much as he could. It was a devastating experience for him, but for nine days, he was trying to figure out how he was going to make it out of the desert. Now, we're going to talk about him a little bit later on in the sermon, but he was being interviewed later on about himself surviving, and he said that, that one of the quotes he said was, I craved water because I craved life. Uh, and in that moment, he said that the desert made him clarify his ultimate priorities in life. That's something that's happened to David here. He's in the wilderness. His heart feels like he's in a desert. It's either, we don't know the circumstances specifically. It might be that his own son Absalom uh, is seeking to kill him and take the throne from David. It might be that it's King Saul who's trying to kill David because he's a threat to the throne. We don't know for sure, but we do know that David is hiding in the wilderness, that he's experiencing distress, discomfort, that people are coming after him to destroy him. And it's interesting that in that wilderness moment, what David becomes uniquely aware of is the thirst of his heart. What's going on inside of him, the desires that are welling up. And their desires maybe that, that we can kind of see and go, I wish my heart could go there in those wilderness moments, those desert moments. We're going to see that his heart's desire was to draw near to the Lord. Even in that moment, his heart's desire was, God, I need you. You are my living water in the midst of this desert that I am walking through. And so this morning, as we look at David writing this psalm for, for Israel in worship and also for us to understand, uh, we're going to see our heart's desire and how to feel your heart's desire. And then secondly, we're going to see how to fuel your heart's desire. But let's stand for the reading of God's Word as we see David in the desert and how his heart responds. Verse 1 of Psalm 63. O God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding 
your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. The reading of God's word which he has given to you because he loves you and he wants you to know him. Let's pray. Father, this morning, you know our hearts. You know if our hearts are eagerly seeking you, if our hearts are weakly seeking you, or if our hearts are seeking you at all. Holy Spirit, would you fan to a flame the desires of our hearts to draw near to our God this morning, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, would you be living water for our souls this morning as we see how this psalm so clearly and beautifully points to you. As David saw your power and glory in the sanctuary, Jesus, would we see your power and glory this morning through this psalm. We ask in your name, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to see how this psalm helps you feel your heart's desire. And also how it fuels your life's devotion, but first how it helps you feel your heart's desire. I'll say that David, even as a king of Israel, was not immune from the difficulties of life. You can see in this psalm, he's going through what could be called in an understatement, a difficulty. It's likely that, as I said, his own son or King Saul is trying to kill him. That qualifies as a difficulty. He's facing disappointments in life. He thought life would look one way and now it's looking like another. He probably had no idea that his life would ever look like this, that he's hiding in the wilderness. He's facing not only difficulties and disappointments, but discouragements as well. What's life going to be like in the future? Am I going to make it out right now? He's also facing the reality of either dysfunctional family, his own son coming after him, or simply dysfunctional relationships. Saul, what is going on with you? You're jealous of me, so you're trying to kill me because you know God has me as the ultimate king of Israel? None of us are difficult to, or immune from those kinds of difficulties at all. You face difficulties in life. You will face discouragements and disappointments in life. And often in Scripture, one of the things that we'll do is it will say that those difficulties and disappointments and discouragements are like heat bearing in on your heart. And it begins to feel like a desert. And in the midst of that, if you're a believer in Jesus, your heart is going to begin to experience some kind of a desire, a thirst. And even if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, maybe you're here this morning because you're curious about 
who Christ is and what this Christianity thing is all about, your heart also hungers in those moments. Your heart thirsts in those moments for water, something that can make you feel satisfied and whole and complete. And one of the first things that I think this psalm encourages us to do is to feel your heart's desire in those desert moments. You know, it's interesting, elsewhere in the Psalms, there are honest moments where the psalmist writes, and I would also say in our own lives, maybe we feel like this, but when you get in that desert moment and you're feeling the heat of life, whether it's a season of life or a moment of the week for you, whatever it is, there's various ways your heart can respond, and one is demanding that God would fix the situation. You're in the desert, and it's God, you have to fix this. Why am I going through this? Now, before I say that's all wrong, remember Paul had a thorn in his flesh. And he said, please take this from me. Three times. Jesus himself, as he was facing the cross, said, Father, if there's any other way for us to accomplish this plan, let's do that. And there, there wasn't. He had to accept the cup of God's justice for our sin. But often our hearts can demand God Fix this. But that's not what David is doing in this psalm as he's in the wilderness. Nor is he declaring that God has failed him. If you remember, God has promised David already at this point in his life that, that there would never fail to be David or one of his sons on the throne. He made that promise to David. And David could be saying, you know, it seems like you failed me right now. I'm not on a throne in Jerusalem. I'm in the wilderness wondering if I'm going to die. So he could demand that God fix the situation. We often do that. I know I do that. He could declare that, that God has failed him. At least it seems that way. On a horizontal level, when we're in the wilderness, it's, it's often very tempted to work very diligently in our own wisdom, in our own strength, for us to fix the situation. And yes, God calls us to be responsible for all the things in our lives, but yet at the same time, sometimes we work so hard because we're trying to fix it because we're upset that God doesn't seem to be doing anything. And you'll notice that verse 1 of Psalm 63 doesn't say any of those things. He's not demanding that God fix it in the desert. He's not declaring that God has been unfaithful to him. He's not diligently trying to fix it on his own. His desire is to draw near to God. Look at verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Listen, he's in the, the wilderness. He's in the desert facing difficulties and disappointments, discouragement, maybe even destruction. And he says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Listen to the language of thirsting and hungering. He says, my soul, the deepest part of who I am, thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now here's something this morning. I, I've been praying about this all week and um, I just, I just want to say this. This message is for everyone here in this room, but I want to particularly, especially speak to the men this morning. David is a warrior. I mean, he's a, he's a man's man in so many different ways. The uh, scriptures say that he's a man after God's own heart. And yet here, it's beautiful to see 
that as a warrior and as a man of God, he is aware of his heart's desire. He knows what's going on inside of him. And he says, my soul thirsts for God. As in a dry and weary land, my my flesh faints for my God. He's aware of that desire within him. And now he begins to address it by drawing near to God. Well, what, what motivates David to draw near? What, what kind of inflames this desire in his heart? And here's one of the things I think that happens for David. When we draw near to God, we, we draw near to Him because you've been captured by a vision of grace. Verse 1 is followed by verse 2. He's drawing near to God. He's hungry. He's thirsty. Verse 2, he says, So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. You know, it's interesting. As a man in the past, David was captured by a different vision. He was captured by a vision of lust. If you remember, he's kind of hanging out in his palace and he looks over the way and he sees Bathsheba on the top of a roof and goes, Ooh, she's pretty. And he's so captured by a vision with her that he goes to be with her and he actually has her husband killed in battle. If you know that story, he was captured by a vision that was not God's glory. And it just introduces into David's life so much destruction and dysfunction. At one time, he was captured by a different vision. Another time, he was captured by a vision of authority and power and security. God told David, don't don't count your troops. Don't count them. I'll always make sure you have sufficient troops to defend Jerusalem and everything else you might need. But then David goes, you know what? I'm going to count my troops. He starts counting them. And you can see David's heart swelling in pride, saying, look how many troops I have. Look how many soldiers and warriors I have at my disposal because I'm a king. I have authority. I have power. And they give me security. He was captured no longer by a vision of lust with Bathsheba, but a picture of authority and power and security. That's what was capturing his vision. But here the reason he wants to draw near to God that he's aware of his heart's thirst and desire for God is because he's been captured by a vision of grace. Look in verse 3 again. Because your steadfast love, or excuse me, verse 2, so I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your glory and power. In verse 1, when he says, O God, you are my God, he uses the name Elohim for God. A vision for God that is transcendent and holy and righteous King over all things. But then in verse 2, he says, so I've looked upon you in the sanctuary. What he's saying is, he's come to find that God is also God who longs to draw near His people. To meet with them. To meet with someone like David, such a sinner. Someone like you this morning. All of us together, sinners. This God loves to draw near to His people In the Old Testament, the sanctuary was what God said, the place where his name dwelt, where you could draw near to his heart and character. Listen, you do not want to draw near to God in his power and his glory apart from the sanctuary, the place where his mercy was displayed. His power and glory apart from mercy is terrifying because he's so holy and transcendent. 
Oh, but if you see his power and glory in the sanctuary. He draws near. He says, I want you to see my power. I want you to see my glory, but only in the sanctuary. The place where you worship me because I've shown you mercy. And for David, it was the tabernacle. He would go to the tabernacle and there you would offer a sacrifice, an animal, his blood would be shed, its life would be given on behalf of whoever was offering it so that they could see that God was a forgiving God. But blood must be shed. And listen, one of the things that the New Testament says is that the, ultimately the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. And it's fascinating that the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, was where God's power and glory was seen. In John chapter 1, it says that when Jesus came, He dwelt among us. Literally, He tabernacled among us. That Jesus is now the fulfillment of the sanctuary. He is the place where God meets with you. He's the person through whom God meets with you. And He's the one through whom you see the power and glory of God. That's what, what Paul says. He says that in Christ we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If David could be excited, that his desires could grow because he loves seeing the power and glory of God in the sanctuary. How much more all of us this morning that Christ has come, that our desires should say, God, the reason I'm thirsty for you is because I've seen your power and glory in Christ. And I want to draw near to you. That's what helps his desires so that he's captured by a vision of grace. Have you been captured by that vision? Is there a different vision that's captured your heart this morning? That there's something else that you give your mind's attention to. There's something else that you give your heart's affection to. Something else that you give your life's devotion to. It's a, it's a different vision. Or is it, this God has drawn near to me in and through Jesus Christ. And in Him I've seen God's power and glory. Jesus isn't simply the sanctuary. He's also the priest who offers the sacrifice. And He is the sacrifice. He is the place of mercy for us so that we can freely and joyfully behold the power and glory of God. So he's aware of his heart's desire. He's drawn near to God because he's been captured by a vision of grace. And secondly, we see that one of the things that David wants to help you to do through his heart is that your heart would learn the valuation of grace. He's not just been captured by a vision of grace. He's learned the valuation of grace. You can see this in verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life. Do you see the language of comparing there? Your steadfast love, more valuable than life itself. How could David learn that? Listen, the, the language behind steadfast love is one of the most important words in the entire Old Testament. It's the language of hesed. And here's how I would, would translate it, maybe define it, is it's God's affectionate, passionate commitment to His people no matter what the cost. His affectionate, passionate commitment to His people no matter what the cost. Once He grabs hold of you, He's never letting go no matter what it costs Him. David has seen this over and over again. 
God delivered him from lions and bears because of his steadfast love, David will say in other Psalms. David delivered him from Goliath because of God's steadfast love in other places in Scripture. Consistently, God was with David because of his steadfast love, his commitment to carry through no matter what the cost. And David looks at that steadfast love, all the promises that God has made, all the promises that God has been faithful to, And he says, because I've experienced and known the steadfast love of God, it's better than life itself. Listen, David, I'm sure, is like every single one of of us in this room. I value my life. I value it. It's important to me. It's valuable to me. But David says, "When when you understand grace, his steadfast love is better than life. Listen, Paul will say something similar in Philippians chapter 1. He says he grabs hold of Christ because Christ has grabbed hold of him. And when he's talking about the Philippians, he says, listen, I could stay with you for your progress and joy in the faith, or or if they execute me because he was in prison, he said, I would go and I would be with Christ, which is far better. He so learned the value of grace that even though he values his own life, he says, I value grace. God's steadfast love even more. And listen, if David is amazed and marveling at God's steadfast love in this psalm, the way the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews does it is it will consistently say, how much more? How much more us now together on this side of Calvary? Jesus, the perfect embodiment and incarnation of the steadfast love of God. God's affectionate and passionate commitment to carry through no matter what the cost. For God to draw near to us and for us to draw near to Him, it would cost the life of His own Son. It would cost Jesus His own life. A cost that He was not only willing to pay, but He was joyfully, Hebrews says, willing to pay so that our heart's desire could find Him to be the living water that we so desperately need. Because Jesus gave his life for us in his steadfast love, David has learned, we learn, that his steadfast love is better than life. Our desires for drawing near to God grow when you've been captured by a vision of grace and when you learn the valuation of grace. There's so many other things that we we value more. Sin causes us to overvalue things that don't have much value and to undervalue the one who really does have immense, eternal, and infinite value, God Himself. Grace begins to train your heart to value His steadfast love more than life itself. Now let me say this just briefly. Notice that David isn't simply making statements about God. He's speaking passionately and personally to God. And again, men this morning, did you know that's what your heart and life can look like. That you can know Him, that He desires to draw near to you, that He longs for you to draw near to Him. To have your heart as a man captured by a vision of grace. Your heart to learn the valuation of grace. And notice how He says, Oh God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My flesh faints for You. 
because your steadfast love is better than life, I will praise you. Do you see the personal relationship that's going on here? He's in the desert. He's facing disappointment, discouragement, but his heart's desire is to draw near to God for the living water that only he can give. He feels his heart's desire, and God longs for us to feel our heart's desire by grace through his Spirit to draw near to to him. Now you'll notice in verse uh, 4, he says, So I will bless you. So here he has his heart's desire. As we transition to our next point, he says, As long as I live. And you'll notice that what David doesn't say here in the midst of the desert is, So I will bless you as long as you get me out of this situation. Or, So I will bless you as long as you keep me happy. So I will bless you if you never let me get in a desert situation again. No, his desire is so to draw near to God as living water that he can say, so I will bless you as long as I live. Even when life feels like a desert. You can only do that when God himself is your living water, feeling your heart's desire, but also fueling your heart's devotion. You can see devotion here all throughout this psalm. In verse 1, it says, earnestly I seek you. That's devotion. Verse 3, my lips will praise you. Devotion. Verse 4, I will lift up my hands. Presbyterians, that's devotion. I love it. Some of you have seen the Babylon Bee, and uh, they had a special article one time where it said that the uh, motion lights in Presbyterian churches would often turn off during worship because nobody moved. I thought that was hilarious. I will lift up my hands in devotion to God. I will praise you in verse 5 with joyful lips. Verse 7, I will sing for joy. All of this in the desert. In the midst of disappointment and discouragement, he is still fueling his heart's devotion for God. There's a few ways that he does this this morning. Let me go through these briefly. The first one is the anticipation of satisfaction. He's in the desert, but in verse 5, he says this, So my soul will will be satisfied as with rich and fat food. He's in the desert anticipating this feast. Let me just pause for a moment and tell you a little story about Colorado. Uh, We were out there last week, David and I, to celebrate his 13th birthday. We had a blast. Did you have a blast, David? We had a great time. And uh, we ate at this place called The Crave on Main Street in Buena Vista, Colorado. And uh, it was good, David, wasn't it? Really good pizza. He had a margarita. I had a sausage. That's my always go-to. And he says, uh, Dad, this is, this is the, the best pizza I've ever had. And I thought, yes, that's great. So the next day we climb um, Mount Harvard. I think it's 14,360 feet. David got to the top, which was awesome. Let's just say when you do that, you get a little hungry. You get a little thirsty. David was not currently eating the pizza But he was so filled with joy because he goes, Dad, when we get down into Buena Vista, can we get Crave? I mean, just the anticipation of pizza made him excited. 
We get down there, we have Crave, it's wonderful. The next day, another situation comes up. He and I are enjoying ice cream from Louis Ice Cream. Uh, He got a really special ice cream called Colorado Mud. It's very tasty. I got a really special ice cream called Chocolate. And we're sitting there eating our ice cream. It was so funny. There's about this three-year-old girl and about a five-year-old girl. And they come running through the front door. And they get up to the top where you, you know, you tell them what ice cream you want. And they're sitting there. There's no parents with them at this moment. They've been running so fast. And they're sitting there going like this. And they're going, ice cream, ice cream, mom, ice cream. Now listen, I bet you all just want to see me dance like that more. They were not eating ice cream in the moment. They were anticipating eating ice cream, and their hearts were about ready to explode. David is not yet fully experiencing what he wants to experience, God's presence. But anticipation of it, he feels joy. Verse 5, so my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. He says, listen, I'm in the desert now, but I know that when I draw near to God and He draws near to me, I will be deeply satisfied. And so my soul will praise Him with joyful lips. Just the anticipation of satisfaction. Men... (laughs) And everyone else here in this room, I think one of the reasons we don't draw near to God is because we don't anticipate that He will satisfy us. We anticipate that, you know, who knows, whatever it is, hours in front of a TV, whatever it is, looking at something, spending time with a hobby that we'd rather do than anything else. Some things are good things that we want to do. Other things are things we should not be doing. But we think those things will satisfy me more than drawing near to God. David's been so trained in his desires that he says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. The anticipation of satisfaction. Earlier, he says that God's steadfast love is better than life. We, we tend to praise what we prize. We also sing about what satisfies. If you've ever had a good meal, you're like, man, that was delicious. And David says, when I think about God satisfying me, it makes my heart sing. Not only the anticipation of satisfaction that fuels your heart's desire and devotion, but also the practice of meditation. Listen, David is not so inhuman that he he is not kept up late at night by all the discouragements and disappointments that he's facing. He says, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you, in the watches of the night. He's being kept up at night because of what he's going through. But instead of being annoyed by that, he sees it as an opportunity to draw near to God through meditation. I love Isaiah talks about meditation. He uses the same word of a lion chewing on a bone over and over with delight. And meditation for the believer is thinking about, considering God's faithfulness over and over You'll notice that he meditates on God's past provision for him. He says, I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. 
Now, one of the things that the Psalms does is it doesn't often speak in particulars so that you can apply it personally. So if David said, for you have been my help when I was fighting bears and lions, I think most of us in this room, at least I hope most of us in this room would go, I can't identify with that. I've never fought a bear or a lion. Or David could say, for you have been my help when I was making difficult military decisions or political decisions or alliance decisions with other nations. We'd go, I really haven't been there. But the Psalms intentionally keep things general so that you can make them personal. So David says, for you have been my help. He's inviting you to say, meditate on the ways that God has been your help. That's one of the ways you can fuel your devotion for God. God, you were my help in my teen years when I was walking through this. You were my help in college when I walked through this season. Even though I didn't know it in the moment. But you were my help. You are my help right now as I walk through this desert season. You have been my help. Not only God's past provision, but also his present location. Notice that this causes David to rejoice. He says, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Do you see what's happened? Now David has gone from distant desert, now to as close as he can be to the heart of God, under his wings. A place of intimacy, security. It's where little chickens could hear the heartbeat of their mother and feel secure from the harsh things that were going on outside. It's amazing that even Jesus in the Gospels looks at Jerusalem while he's weeping, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you like hens under my wing. That's God's desires for you to draw near to him in that way, to experience that kind of intimacy and closeness to him. And notice his response as he meditates. He says, my soul clings to you. It's the same language of Genesis chapter 2 that, that a husband and wife shall cling to each other, right? David is saying, now I cling to you. But then he says, the reason I cling to you is because your right hand upholds me. He says, the only reason I desire this right now, the only reason my life is being devoted to you right now like this is because your right hand upholds me. And if David marvels at that, we should marvel that those right, that right hand that upholds you right now is a nail-pierced hand. The one who continues to help you, the one who continues to uphold you is the one whose hands were pierced for you. So you fuel your heart's desire and devotion by the anticipation of satisfaction, the practice of meditation, what he's done for you in the past, his desire for you to draw near to him in the present, and lastly, the hope of vindication. You'll see here in verse 10 or verse 9, it says, Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. He's saying, No enemy shall ultimately prevail over me because God is my God. And for David, God will deliver David from his enemies. David is sure of that because he's the king. But he's not the ultimate king. Jesus, when he was teaching his disciples on the way to Emmaus, he opened up the Bible and it said that he showed them how the law and the prophets and the Psalms all pointed to him. David, God would deliver David from his enemies. The Father would deliver Jesus, the King of kings, over to His enemies. 
to save his enemies. Romans chapter 5, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And he goes on later to say that he died for his enemies. Jesus was not delivered from his enemies, but the Father, out of love for sinners, delivered him over to his enemies in order to save his very enemies. Does that not fuel your devotion? And listen, God even made sure that Jesus was vindicated. That his ultimate enemy, death, and our ultimate enemy, death, could never triumph over us because of the grace of God. Therefore, the king rejoices. And all those who swear by that king, Jesus Christ, they too shall exult. Even in the desert. Feel your heart's desire. Draw near to God. Be captured by a vision of grace. Learn the valuation of grace. Fuel your heart's desire by anticipating that God wants to satisfy you. By meditating on how He's been your help and how He wants to draw you near right now this morning. And know that the ultimate vindication has come in and through Jesus Christ who is handed over for His enemies. Are you looking to Him this morning? Let me tell you this morning, if you are a believer, your desire, ultimate desire in the new heart that God has given you is to draw near to God. Therefore, in devotion, respond to Him in praise. If you're here this morning and not yet a believer in Jesus, receive Him as your King. Receive Him as your Savior and He will be to you living water as the one who forgives you all of your sin. Let me end with this. The man who was in the desert for nine days on day number two, he saw a plane looking for him. It did not see him. On day number four, he saw a helicopter looking for him in the distance. It was looking for him, but it did not find him. On day eight, he finally saw a girl shepherding a flock of goats. He was so emaciated by that point that she thought he was a ghost. And she ran away in terror. And the next day, he finally found his way into a little village. People were looking. They never found him. Someone who did see him turned away in terror. And Psalm 63 says, when you're in the desert and you're thirsty beyond compare, even as you are looking for water, the one who is living waters is looking for you. And he will find you. And no matter what you look like or what your heart looks like, he will not turn away from you in terror. But he will come to you and he will bring a feast with him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this morning through Psalm 63, we draw near to you. And we pray that you would satisfy our souls and that you would bring us under the shadow of your wings. Father, we cling to you this morning. In the nail-pierced hands of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, uphold us. Jesus, help us to trust and believe in you and to drink living water that comes from your heart to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.